So I am Julie, and I love being at Hume Lake, and I just want each and every one of you guys to know that my husband and I have been praying over each and every one of you for months and months and months. And maybe not by name, but it is not an accident that God has you here tonight, and I believe he's going to bring freedom this, this weekend, and I am trusting him for that. I'm excited to see him work. But what I love about coming on Hume Lakes campus is listening to women talk. And apparently there's some people here that put grandma on the top bunk. And so I got to hear, I, got, I was walking by this group and heard the whole story. It made me laugh. And it made me wonder how many of you in the audience put the oldest woman on the top bunk? <laughs> oh, look at, she owns it. I love that she owns it. <laughs> It makes me laugh, so be careful when I'm around, because if I hear you, I might share your story. But I, um, I brought a picture of my family in right there. That way you can put um, names to face, or actually faces to names, because you'll be hearing about these people all weekend long. My, over here is my son-in-law, Stephen, and, and my daughter, Cassie, and they have two girls. They're my grandbabies. Finley is four. Well, actually, she's three, but she will be four in a couple of weeks. And Addie is two. And I like to think of Stephen as my own because he's been around since 14. So I had a part in raising him. Amen? I get to claim him. And then next to my daughter is my youngest son, Sam. We call him Baby Westfall in our family. He does not like it, but we all get a kick out of it. And he very much is, acts as though he is Baby Westfall. And then there's me and my husband. He is here with me this weekend. He always sits in the balcony. We've been married for almost 30 years, and he is the love of my life. I am very thankful that God that God gave me Tom to do life with. Okay, so if you see him, say, hi, Tom, because he always says, people start saying, you're the husband. <laughs> That's how they know him. I said, okay, I'll introduce you as Tom. So there you go. And then um, next to my husband, that tall drink of water is Natalie. She is my third born, and she is a fifth grade teacher. She just moved home, and she's teaching school. She's actually here. Actually, both of my girls are here um, this weekend. And then next to uh, her is my son, Zachary, and his wife, Emma. And that right there is a miracle baby, Riley. We've been praying for her for years and years, and God just answered our prayers and gave us our sweet baby Riley. So that is my family. And so I just wanted to share with you guys who they are. You'll see some of them here today throughout the weekend. But this, as I was studying for this retreat and I was thinking about what I was going to be speaking about, I realized that there was only two books in the entire Bible named after women. One of them is Ruth, and um, that's, the, that's the book that we'll be in this weekend. She is a Gentile woman who marries an Israelite, and through their line, they perpetuate the line of Christ. And the other woman is Esther, and she is an Israelite woman that marries a Gentile king and uses her position to save her people from destruction. So both of these women, which I thought was interesting, how God honors women in the word, we need to realize that both of these women were used directly or indirectly to save their people from destruction, amen? And God names 
um, Bible, the books of the Bible after them. And what I love about the Lord is that he, there's also only two uh, Gentiles that have books named after him. One in the Old Testament, that's Ruth, and one in the New Testament, and that's Luke. And so I just love how the Lord works. But because most of us here would probably identify as being a non-Israelite grafted into God's family, I thought it would be a great place to camp this weekend in the book of Ruth. And so if you want to read along, we're going to start in Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. It says, In the days when judges ruled, there was famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the name of one the name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife Naomi and the names of their two sons were Malone and Kilion and they were Ephraimites from Bethlehem in Judah and they went into the country of Moab and they remained there but Elimelech the husband of Naomi died and she was left with her two sons and these took Moabite wives the name of one was Orpah the name of the other Ruth they lived there about 10 years, and both Malone and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So right off the bat, this story is tragic. And really, what I love about the book of Ruth, it is very raw, it's very real, it's very transparent, so we can learn a lot from it. And just recently, I have a girlfriend, her husband was, used to be a pastor, and so everybody in their neighborhood kind of comes to him for advice. And even people that don't believe in God. And I thought that was interesting. And they have this one woman who just came, stopped him on the street. And she came to the, him. And she's lived a very tragic life. And nothing of her own doing. Just things that have happened to her. Very tragic. And she had a question for him. She said, why does God hate me? She doesn't believe in God, but if there were a God in her mind, he hates her because of her circumstances, and I feel like the book of Ruth addresses that question really well, and that it shows that not only does he not hate you, but he actually is pursuing you, and he's actually using circumstances to draw you to him. And that is the kind of God we serve, and we'll see that throughout the weekend. But this book it has a lot to teach, and the very first sentence is packed with information. It says, in the days when judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And the story starts out in a very dark period of Israel's history, the time of the judges. This was a period in time after Joshua, the leader of Israel, dies, and before Israel gets her first king, King Saul, there is a 400-plus year period of time called the time of the judges, and the book of Judges tells us about that time. And it really is a very dark book. If you ever read it, you'll be, oh yeah, Israel's not doing so hot at that time. But see, God calls Moses, and he says, hey, I want you to take my people out of Egypt. And they've been in slavery for 400 years. And, and, and through a lot of work, that's what happens. Moses takes the people out of Egypt, and they wander in the desert for 40 years. And it, he's getting ready to die, and God gives him his succession plan. He says, I want you to pass the leadership baton to Joshua. 
And Joshua then takes, after Moses dies, Joshua takes the people into the promised land. And the promised land is just the place that God had promised to give to Israel, this piece of land. He had made covenant with Israel saying, you will be my people, I will be your God, and I will give you land. And so that is why it's called the promised land. It's this land of Canaan. But what was supposed to happen is when they got into this land, they were to drive out the Canaanites. And actually, Joshua does an amazing job of making that happen at first. But when Joshua is getting ready to die, there is no succession plan. God is actually strangely silent about what happens after Joshua dies. Because in a perfect world, God wanted the Israelites to look at him as king, and they would come, inquire of him, and then they would obey him. But that isn't what happened. So after the death of Joshua, the tribes operated independently because there was no central government, there was no central leadership. And because of this, they start disobeying God. When we first opened to the book of Jude, Jude, I don't know where that came from, but when we first opened to the book of Judges, it actually looks like they're doing a pretty good job. And I'm talking about the first chapter. Some tribes came to God. They asked him what they were supposed to do. He said, drive out the Canaanites. They obeyed him. But pretty quickly, you realize that not all the tribes did that. In fact, there were a lot of them that didn't because they wanted to just stay where they were. They wanted to stay where they were because it's easier to stay in places that others have conquered than to go out into the unknown. It is easier to stay in places that others have conquered than to go out into the unknown. And I don't know about you, but that preaches to me, especially lately. As I have been praying in faith for something that's super scary to me, and I don't want to do it. And actually, I told my husband, I'll be super mad if we do this. And then the Lord kind of has been moving in my spirit. And he's like, go to new places with me. Don't stay where I've just put you. Stay in places that you've conquered, but I have new things for you. Who needs to hear that tonight? God has new things for you. Don't stay in the places that are safe and conquered. God has new things for you. And and because these tribes aren't obedient and they refuse to go to the places that God wants them to, God tells them in Judges 2, 2 through 3, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. Do you realize it's because he is a promise keeper and he cannot break his covenant? He cannot because he is a promise keeper. And he said, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. And that is exactly what happens. Those people became a a thorn in Israel's side. And so the book of Judges shows the cycle of sin repeated over and over and over throughout the book. And as Israel would sin... God would allow them to be oppressed by the Canaanites, the very people they refused to drive out of the land. 
And the people would come, oppress them, and life would get so hard that Israel would cry out to God in repentance. And then once they repented, God would deliver them by raising up a judge. And don't think of a courtroom judge. Think of a warrior, someone that leads them into battle to conquer the oppressor. That's what God would raise up. And then after he delivered them, there would be a time of peace until Israel turned her back on God again, and they would sin. So it was sin, oppression, um, repentance, deliverance, peace, and then sin again. And, and as this was a circular cycle, we have to realize that it was also a downward spiral into Israel's own self-destruction. And she is going through this throughout the book of Judges until we hear in the very last book of that verse, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It was complete and total moral anarchy. Can you imagine living in that time? <laughs> and as bad as we have it here, I'm just letting you know, it isn't that everyone was doing right, whatever was right in their own eyes. And at some point during this period, I described the story of Elimelech and his wife, Naomi, and their two sons is happening somewhere between this 400 plus year period. And more than likely, they're in the oppression piece of the sin cycle because they're in fam there's a famine in the land. And the reason why there was a famine in the land, most of the time, these famines would happen because the Canaanites would come and oppress the people. And what did they do? They took their food. They took their food. They destroyed their crops. And guess what happens? A famine. And that's what was happening. And Elimelech looks around. And he decides that he would rather move out of the promised land than endure that hardship. And so he goes, he goes and he looks around and he decides on a country called Moab, which is about 50 miles east um, of Bethlehem across the Jordan River. And this is where Moses transferred leadership to Joshua and, and where he was buried. And really, it was kind of probably this time of faith that, that Moses was there that maybe beckoned him. But also, the fact that this was a very, a very um, like, it, had a, it was very green, and it, it was very fertile, and it, had, it, could, it could handle their livestock. And so he looks around at all the things that he doesn't have, and he sees abundance over in Moab, and so he goes there. But see, Moab has a sordid history with Israel. The Moabites started from an incestuous relationship with, between Lot and his daughter. See, Lot's daughter didn't have a way to have a baby, so she decided to get her father drunk and sleep with him. And he didn't know what was happening. And from that, a baby, she had a baby named Moab, and the Moabite people started. And these were distant cousins of Israel. And these are the people that hired Balaam to curse Israel when, when she wandered in the desert. And because of this, in Deuteronomy 23, 3 through 6, the Moabites were not allowed to enter the assembly of the Lord because they did not meet you with food and water on your way out of Egypt. I thought that was interesting. They did not provide aid to Israel when she was coming out of Israel. And you would think, out of Egypt, and you would think, that when your distant cousins 
would provide aid to you in your desperate need, and that didn't happen, and God holds it against them. And then it says, and they also hired Balaam to curse you, yet the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, and the Lord your God turned the curse into blessing for you, because the Lord your God loves you. And I love that, because I want you to understand that as the Israelites were wandering in this desert, they did not feel loved by God, amen? They didn't feel it. And so now you sit there and you realize that God loved them and took a curse and turned it into blessing. And all of this was happening without their knowledge as they wandered in the desert. And in verse 6, it says, you are not to seek peace and prosperity from them as long as you live. So Elimelech was taking his family to a place God told them not to go. That's where he was going. He was seeking peace and prosperity in enemy territory because the promised land looked too hard. And the promised land looked too hard because the promised land was hard. Famine, I don't want to gloss over it. It was difficult. It was difficult. Scarcity is difficult. So I don't blame him for thinking he had to come up with a different solution to help his family. He he made me realize that I'm not alone in my desire to do that. When, I, when life feels out of control, I have this desire to take control. And that's exactly what he was doing because control seems a lot easier than faith a lot of times, right? And when you're looking at your surroundings and all you see is scarcity and death or destruction and you can't even fathom how things could possibly change, it makes sense that we would try to control the situation to be able to try to fix it to try to restore it, but anything on our own without God isn't going to work. It's not going to work. And it's important to remember that it is at these times that the enemy will beckon you to greener pastures. You can count on it. He will beckon you to greener pastures. When you are in times of famine, in times of scarcity, whether physically or spiritually, he will beckon you to greener pastures to seemingly safer circumstances, to satisfaction and fullness. But these things apart from God, outside of the promised land, they're always lies. And they will only lead to greater grief. That's the only thing that can come from it. And we see, and we see this with this little family that is really wanting to save themselves from destruction, but they're actually traveling towards their own destruction by going outside of the will of God. The death that they were trying to escape, they were actually running towards. And after giving us insight into what time of history the story takes place, verse 1 goes on to tell us there was famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. See, this was only supposed to be a temporary fix. They were only supposed to sojourn there. Meaning that when they left Bethlehem, they were planning on returning. But see, the human mind has this great ability to justify doing whatever we want to do. And in the very next verse, we see this temporary home has become permanent. In verse 2 tells us, they went to the country of Moab and they remained there. See, that word remain, it stands out like a sore thumb in contrast to sojourn because it has roots. It it seems immovable in the actual original Hebrew. That word means to become or exist. 
So Elimelech and his family left the promised land and they, they, they established themselves. They put down roots. They became, they existed in Moab. They were no longer sojourning. They were no longer sojourning. Are you in a period of famine in your life? I want to caution you to be careful where you sojourn. And I'm not just talking about physically, although it has a physical part to it. I'm talking about mentally, where you sojourn. What starts off, be careful, because what starts off as a temporary jaunt outside of the will of God can quickly become permanent. I've seen it with bitterness. If you're going to sojourn with bitterness, guess what? It quickly becomes permanent. It quickly becomes permanent. Watch out what you allow your mind to linger on. Be very careful because what you think is just a temporary jaunt can quickly become permanent. And remember that anything this world has to offer will never satisfy you, no matter how abundant it looks. And we as people have this desire to pretend like we're in control, even if you're not a controlling person, because everybody knows this about me who knows me because I like to control things. But everybody has this idea that we are in control until we become, come face-to-face with the fact that we clearly aren't. I, I think of my, my son and my daughter-in-law who really wanted to have a baby, and, you know, they were going to have a baby on this time schedule. That was the time that they decided they were going to have a baby until they sat in a doctor's office, and that doctor told them they were infertile. And guess what? They realized they're not in control. They're not in control. And so what we do in those times and those periods of of storms in our lives where we come face to face with the fact that we really aren't in control, no matter if it's your health, no matter if it's your business, your finance, whatever it is, we, we tend to, instead of surrendering it to God, we like to try to take control in other places. Amen? We love to do that. Uh, we see it in young women all the time when their lives seem out of control and then they, what can they control? They can stop eating. That's something that they can control. We do this in our prayer life. If God doesn't answer our prayers, then I'm going to stop praying. That I, I decided to take control of something because I clearly am out of control. And my daughter, when she was young, and this is when she was very young, so if you see her around, this is not her current place, um, but she, my, my dad was diagnosed with cancer in the year 2000. He was given a 3% chance to live. And at the same time, my, my sister's father-in-law was diagnosed with cancer. And my sisters and I have raised our kids very together, so we kind of share grandparents. And so in this one period of time, my daughter, both her pop and her papa, had cancer. And she was on fire to pray for them. She prayed for them all the time. In fact, we were in grocery store lines. She would tell the checker that he needed to pray for them as well. (laughs) She was just on fire. She would remind us all the time, believing that Jesus is the only way that they could receive healing. And and that was true. And then my dad was healed, miraculously healed. Doctors had no idea why his cancer left. We know it was Jesus. They didn't want to believe that. And Papa, God took him home. And I don't know why one got to live and one was taken home. 
That's up to God. I have no idea. But it was the first time in my young daughter's life that God disappointed her. We have times in that in life. And it was the first time that she said, wait, I did all of these things that you asked me. I prayed and prayed and prayed. So if you're going to just do whatever you want to do anyway, then I'm out. I'm not going to pray. And lots of us feel that way. Adults feel that way. And the problem is that life is a series of choices to walk by faith. And they're hard. It's hard to walk by faith. To release control and trust God to keep working on your behalf is hard when your life is falling apart. The times in life when there's nothing you can physically do except trust your God, those are the times that you grow in faith the most. But don't you hate it when people tell you that? It makes you so mad. But see, faith always requires surrender. That's why it's hard. And surrender is one of those things that we have to do over and over and over again. And every single time we do it, it feels like the first time we've ever done it. Because we're really, what we're doing is we're surrendering what we want for what God gives. And it's probably one of the most difficult parts of our walk with Jesus. And I love that David, when he's writing Psalm 23, the very first thing he says is he says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And he's saying it as a declaration, saying, hey, the Lord is my shepherd, he gives me everything I need. But do you also understand he's saying it as a decision? It is a decision that he is making, saying whatever the Lord gives me, that is what I need. That is hard to say. That is true surrender. See, we can't control a person's choices. And many times we can't control what happens to us in this life. But we can control how we respond to those things. We can control what we believe about God. Those are the things that we can control. Will we respond in faith? And this is where we find Naomi. She is alone. In her mind, she's lost everything. She lives in a culture of patriarchy, which is a male-dominated society in which women have no rights. This is where Naomi lives. And she is living in this time without the protection and provision of a man. It would be a very scary place to, to live. And to make matters worse... She's living in the time of judges outside of the promised land in enemy territory. And she has two young women that are dependent upon her. It's not an easy place for Naomi. And at this point, Naomi needs to make a choice. She can either stay in Moab or she can try to control her life or she can turn around and go back to the promised land. And let's see what she decides starting in verse 6. It says, then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. Good job, Naomi. For she had heard in the fields of, of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where, where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way, 
And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of your husband. And we're going to talk about that last sentence in, in tomorrow. So just keep that in mind. But Naomi finally makes this choice to return. She has hit, hit rock bottom, and somehow she heard that the Lord visited his people. And this is the deliverance part of the sin cycle that we talked about. And that word visited means to attend to. And I love that. I love that word. He attended to his people. He saw their need even in sin. Do you realize that? He saw their need. And he attended to it. He, he drew them back to himself. And that is exactly what he's doing to Naomi, but Naomi can't see it. She can't see it. And she has two Moabite daughters-in-law and urges them to stay, to stay in Moab. And she does this because she has nothing for them. In her mind, she has no future in which she can help her daughters-in-law. And both of her daughters-in-law at this time, when she urges them to stay, say no. At this time, they say no. And she feels super strongly about it because she then goes and urges them more. And this time, she gives them more reasons it would be harmful to them if they went with her. And in verses 11 through 13, it says, But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that I may become your husbands? That, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should say I have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me to me for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And like I said, she's expressing what their future would look like with her. And, and we're going to get into this idea of bitterness tomorrow, but tonight we're going to talk about the benefit of repentance, of turning back. And this first chapter has been all about decisions of faith. Uh, Elimelech and Naomi decided to control to choose control instead of faith when they left the promised land. And, and then once Elimelech dies, Naomi decides to stay in Moab looking for wives for her sons instead of returning to, to Bethlehem. And now Naomi chooses, and now she decides that she's going to finally return instead of staying in Moab, but her daughters-in-law are faced with that same choice. What, will they go or will they, will they stay? And we, we see that Orpah decides to go back to her mother's house, and we never hear about her in the word again, but Ruth doesn't. She does something different. She does the exact opposite. She clings to her mother-in-law even though she's signing up for a future of scarcity. And what I love about that is this book is all about fullness and emptiness. It, it has all of these themes throughout it, but that's one of the main ones. And see, Elimelech and his wife, they left scarcity looking for abundance, but now we see a young girl actually in abundance, and what is she signing up for? Scarcity. She's doing the exact opposite of what they did. 
And because she is making the biggest faith choice that any of us in this room can make, she's choosing God. She's choosing Yahweh, Israel's covenant God, over what she knows, over her family, over her future. And in the day of Judges, this is what I love about the Bible. In the day of the Judges, when Israel, God's chosen people, keeps turning her back on God, She just keeps turning her back on God, and yet God chooses a Gentile woman, a Moabite, no less, to show what true faith looks like. I love that about God. And her story would be told forevermore in the book of Ruth. Amen? It is incredible how God honors her, this young Moabite woman. And Ruth in verse 16 says, But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, No more. She's speaking in covenantal language because she is making a promise to Naomi to stay with her until death. This is a serious promise. And and she's realizing that as she comes to know the covenant God, Israel's covenant God, this new faith allows her to make that promise to her mother-in-law. But see, Naomi is in a different season of faith. Isn't it interesting how we can all be in different seasons of faith? There are some of us that are on fire, and there are some of us that are barely hanging on, right? We're just barely hanging on. One of my good friends, um, she has a child that she has, um, that she's fostering, and she said, pray for me because I'm losing hope. I'm losing hope. That's a hard place to be in a very hard place to be in. There are different seasons of faith, and this room is full of different seasons of faith. We're all in different places, and that's okay. I want you to remember wherever you are, it isn't your forever. It isn't your forever. And that was true of Naomi. She has been rocked by the storms of life, and even though she's returning to the promised land, she thinks the hand of the Lord is against her. That's what she believes, but the reality is that God sees her, and he beckons her, and he's always seen her, and she doesn't get it. She doesn't get it, and really, she's urging Ruth to go back to her mother's house because she can only see what she can provide for Ruth. She can only see one step of of time, just like we can, and many times in our circumstances, all we can see is what we can do about it, right? And that's why it looks bleak. And sometimes we, or all of the time, we need to remember that we have a God that doesn't, that sees the whole picture. He is not bound by time like we are. And guess what? He has all provision. He is Jehovah Jireh, our great and mighty provider. He can do anything he wants. Around six months ago, I received a text from my nephew, um, him and his wife, lived in San Francisco, and they were, he was going to go to grad school. So they were moving across country to Princeton, New Jersey. That's a long drive. And so he had been keeping us informed of what he needed prayer for. And 
in true Chad form, he made bullet points of, of, of prayer. And my favorite is number three. I'll give you number three. It's titled, because it has titles, it's titled Ambiguous and Scary Moving Logistics. And I thought, well, that makes sense. Moving logistics are always ambiguous and scary, right? You have no idea what's going to happen. And then he goes on to say, I once had a philosophy architecture professor who employed a series of diagrams which included the label for the unknowable, placed affectionately outside the scope of the chart itself. This is essentially that category, and our prayer is that God would reveal to us what we need to know in turn, and that he would go before us and direct us before we go, as we go, and once we are there. And what I loved about that text, and I know this professor did not mean what I'm going to say it means. I know it. But we have this scope of life, right? And we like to know what's going to happen. In fact, my daughter sitting down here has a whole life plan. Do any of you do that? Because I have never seen anything like it. And let me tell you, it hasn't gone her way. It hasn't gone her way. And yet she still thinks that she should make a plan. Like, to the, like I will have a baby. We will go to Disneyland on this year. And I'm not even kidding. So we, um, so I just, I love the fact that we have this plan of life. And then we have outside of this scope, the unknowable. And guess what? Only God knows the unknowable. And what I love that Chad asked is that he asked that God would show him what he needs to know. And for a control freak like me, I'm a person that always wants God to show me all the unknowable. But he never does that. He never does that. He shows us step by step what we need to know because he wants to grow our faith. That is what he wants for us. It seems cruel, but it actually is such a mercy to us. It's so loving and we need to see it for what it is. How many of us here tonight need to be reminded that God sees you in the ambiguous and scary parts of life? There are those ambiguous and scary parts of life. And he knows what you need in those parts of life more than you do. Those things that are unknowable to us are completely known to him. And how many of you need to be reminded tonight that you are known by God? You are known and loved by God, the creator of heavens and earth. He has a personal relationship with you. He loves you. And guess what? He wants you to get to know him. He knows everything there is to know about you. And he wants you to get to know him. He has a plan for your life. And even though he is bigger than your circumstances, he cares deeply about the most minute detail. And when we want to know the unknowable, we need to surrender it to God. We need to surrender that to God. That posture of saying... I want what you give me. I want what you give me. And so tonight I want to have a time of surrender. This is how I want to end it. With a time of surrender. Because many of us have come up this mountain. We're holding very heavy burdens. And, and in order for us to get to a place where we are just allowing God to work in our hearts. We just need to surrender those to him. And do you realize that Naomi stayed in Moab, believing it was what was best for her. 
It, he, she thought it was the best thing for her family, yet it almost cost her everything. And the reason I want to have a time of surrender tonight is because I believe that there are women here tonight that are holding so tight to something that they, will that they believe will bring satisfaction, but it is actually destroying them. And I believe that God is working on your heart right now to make you realize that something that you thought was bringing you satisfaction is actually bringing you destruction. Would you surrender it tonight? Would you surrender that tonight? This is a time where we can lay what we have been holding on to before the throne of God, our worries, our burdens, our insecurities, our independent hearts. That one hurts. Our independent hearts. Lay them down and ask God to take them and fill the void that is left because those things will leave a void. And God needs to fill it. We need to surrender our false beliefs, those areas that we believe that God can't control or that he won't control. That is a false belief. Those areas where we believe that God is cruel and he delights in our suffering, that is a false belief. Those things need to be surrendered, those places we believe that we must take control in order to survive. For some of you, it will be an intentional choice of faith to trust God in your current circumstances because in your current circumstances, it looks impossible. It looks impossible. But you are choosing to trust God even in the famine. You're choosing to trust him. And for some of us, it will be a choice to stand up and return from God. You've been away from God for longer than you care to admit and you're done being in enemy territory, amen? And you want to come back to the promised land. And guess what? God will greet you with open arms no matter how many times you've been away. I don't care if it's your 150th time of turning back to God. He will greet you with open arms. He will welcome you back. And so I would love to have the band come up. And they're going to play uh, some songs while we have a time with Jesus. And this is a time that you get to get alone with God and just give him what's on your heart. And if you feel like you need to kneel, if you need to come up to the, the stage as an altar, then you use this room as you need. And I want you to know that there are prayer people with red tags in the back on the sides and if you need prayer from someone, they would love to pray with you. If you want to surround yourself with your girlfriends and then have them pray for you, this is your time with God. Surrender it. Surrender it. Take what God gives over what we want.